Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Before this episode of the Final Word podcast, a quick thank you to the Final Word sponsor, Brick Lane Brewing. Thanks for supporting our friends at Brick Lane Brewing. Hit them up on Instagram, Brick Lane Brewing. Have you seen their 2021 release, Trilogy of Fear? Oh, it looks intense. I don't even know what it is, but I know this. It's a limited release, so head to bricklanebrewing.com to check it out. I like to think Trilogy of Fear is the exact opposite of Brick Lane's One Love Pale Ale. The yin and yang of beverages, thanks to Brick Lane. Sort of like Adam and Jeff, the yin and yang of cricket writers, broadcasters, and podcasters. I don't know if that makes sense, but you get the idea. Brick Lane Brewing and The Final Word, one of the all-time great partnerships. Make sure you join Adam and Jeff on The Final Word Patreon page. If you support the show, you could win a slab of Brick Lane goodness. Adam and Jeff will tell you more about it in the show. And remember, you can find everything Final Word related at FinalWordCricket.com. Thank you, Brick Lane Brewing, for being part of The Final Word, and thank you for listening. That's enough from me. Now, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, and The Final Word. I had to go about it, write it out. This is the Final Word Cricket Podcast. Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, the weekly edition. There's a lot of editions at the moment. Mm. There's the weekly. So many. There's the Storytime Weekend. There is the Daily, which will start again from tomorrow. We're recording this on Tuesday. Uh, the Women's Test Match starts on Wednesday. I'm heading down to Bristol tonight mm. after doing a blast game between times. So it's been a busy a little stretch for me, but wouldn't have it any other way. How are you going, Jeff? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm all right. I've spent my last couple of weeks just clearing out a storeroom full of all of the assorted detritus of my entire life. <laughs> um, so I've been posting some of the highlights up on social media and um, yes, and and otherwise having an enjoyable time, you know, reading all my old detention slips from high school and that sort of thing. Yeah. We're going to be talking to Snahal Pradhan uh, later in the episode about the women's test match, but not just that, more broadly, uh, the state of women's cricket in India. There's been a lot of debate around it in recent weeks, not least from the reporting of Isabel Westbury, and I thought it was a good time to just take stock with Snahal, who's written an excellent report into exactly that, uh, alongside some other uh, members of the Final Word community who you've heard from in the past. So that later, uh, in the short term, Jeff, actually, before we go anywhere, mm-hmm. speaking of friends of the Final Word, Ebony Rainford Brent MBE. Mm. That news came through, I think, on night two of the test match when we were up at Birmingham. And of course, we're all very excited to to see that news come through, recognising the great work she's done in so many different facets of her life. But in more recent times, the ACE program, we've had her on to discuss that when it was launched last February. We had her back on Mm -hmm. uh, last November to talk about the extraordinary summer she had in relation to the Black Lives Matter movement. And to think that she's now been recognised in this way, well, isn't it a wonderful thing? I don't think 
anyone in the cricket community more generally uh, could have been anything other than chuffed when they saw this come through on social media on Friday night. Definitely deserves recognition. The question is, uh, has Ebony's work on the ACE program been harder overall than Paul Collingwood's seven runs at the Oval in 2005? <laughs> Was that, did, did, did that require more uh, of an investment of time and, and effort and personal sacrifice? Maybe it did. Maybe it did. Who, who am I? Uh, I? I can't. I can't make. Well, that that's judgment. the thing, isn't it? This, the, the, the thing with the honour system is, you see some. I mean, I saw one in Australia the other day. I, I saw an honour that mm. was handed down in Australia. And I, won't, I won't go into who. I mean, it's right up there with the most disgraceful uh, examples of this clear partisanship, and it's just awful when how muddy this gets sometimes. But on other occasions, you mm. get someone like Ebony pop up, and it's such a universally welcome thing, uh, and you can see where it, it does have merit in being mm. able to have a process where we celebrate people who've gone above and beyond and that's certainly the case for Ebony Rainford Brent. I'm sure it's not universally celebrated. I'm sure that uh, black women being recognised for their achievements in trying to promote an end to racial discrimination is not universally welcomed um, and there are plenty well, of yes. awful people uh, <laughs> out there. But, and that, that's, that's the... The catch with these sort of honours systems is that they are recognition for people who've done some great things, um, but they also get given to some truly awful individuals who happen to have a a relationship to power. And so then that devalues it for everybody else who's actually got one for doing the hard work. If you're someone who's Mm. done the the real drudge work in your community for decades and then you're up there next to some politician who's got one for having been an MP and being paid several hundred grand a year to rot the expenses system and do absolutely fuck all for about 30 years, well, it rather undermines the gesture made to the person who actually put in. Yeah, and a lot of politicians do get recognised in these honours and and some for... Some for greater contributions than others. I mean, it's obviously very appropriate when former Prime Ministers uh, get recognised. But anyway, this is a different sort of wormhole that mm. I don't think we should get into because otherwise we but may have, never Haven't get out. they already uh, got it? Like, have, <laughs> isn't a former Prime Minister, haven't they already been honoured because they have the title of having been a former Prime Minister? Do they really need an AO or whatever it is? Like, it, 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 yeah, I think they usually get made an AC. I think, I think you're allowed to have at any given time. Is it 50 ACs? Mm-hmm. 50 living ACs? Anyway, okay. it's... it's, it's uh, this is You're an AC. This is a cricket podcast. I am an AC. Yeah. I doubt I'll be an AC, AC, put it that way. <laughs> will you be an AC, DC, AC, AC? AC, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't think any of those things will happen. We have just had a delay on opening up over here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the UK uh, is going to be waiting, in a, well, England specifically, I should say, uh, waiting a further month mm-hmm. before restrictions lift to the extent to which we thought they might. You're heading the other way now. It feels like all year, Jeff, we've been going into one mm. lockdown or coming out of another uh, at different points, but we didn't think it necessarily would be as you're trending towards winter, or well, you're in winter, aren't you? It's June now, and as we're heading into summer, uh, that we'd be pressing pause, but such as the vagaries of COVID, and that certainly influenced the conversation that Tim Payne was having uh, with the gathered media yesterday, mm-hmm. which I thought was worth starting on. So Payne hasn't really spoken a lot since the summer, and fair enough by the way. Why would he? He's having a breather after a, a fairly uh, a fairly intense summer for lots of reasons and the degree of difficulty last yep. summer for all players involved was increased on the basis of the bubble system. In many ways, like, you know, we've talked about the handful of billionaires or whatever who've done well out of COVID. In many ways, Tim Payne has because it, it's kind of, it's a pretty good deal to be a test captain whose last test was in the middle of January and whose next test is in the middle of November and you get a CA contract for a year out of it. 
Well, that's true. You're basically uh, sort of a. It's like the old um, old county contract, six month contracts, where, well, in Payne's case, he's playing cricket for six months a year and, and training for the other six. But yeah, I, I suppose this has all come to a head in the last few weeks. We mentioned last week that some players may not go to the West Indies. Let's confirm now, or at least it's been reported by the SMH that Steve Smith, David Warner, Pat Cummins, Glenn Maxwell, Marcus Stoinis, Jai Richardson. And Kane Richardson won't go to the Windies or, or Bangladesh. And I suppose the majority of that cohort will end up in the UAE for the IPL uh, in September and into October. And I suppose even potentially into November, come to think of it. Mm. And some of them will be at the 100 ahead of that, I guess. I'm not sure how they'll quite structure that after not going to an international tour. But nevertheless, I wouldn't be surprised if some of them ended up in the UK for the 100. And Payne was making the point in his press conference that there'll be players in his test team who've mm. done hotel quarantine six to seven times so 12 to 14 weeks mm. i mean depending on where they've been but up to let's say 12 to 14 weeks of time in a hotel with a yep. door shut behind you and how that is taking such a toll on these players and how he thinks that's actually a real threat on the field in terms of what they can achieve this summer so it's the first time we've i, I suppose heard pain be so forceful about this last year he acknowledged that it was a challenge but it was kind of the we're all in this together kind of thing yep. and it's just a short-term problem everything will get back to normal soon but now that we know that in all probability this will last for at least another year of having to bubble and quarantine from place to place mm. it does change the dynamics of, of the ashes summer that's coming up well you and i have both done one quarantine and the prospect of doing a second one is quite onerous to <laughs> to both of us imagine doing half a dozen of yes. the things I, I did note that um, tim payne yeah. said that six to seven quarantines would be 14 to 15 weeks which was an interesting bit of arithmetic on the fly um that, that was i i uh, I, I identified with that particular bit of calculation but yeah 12 14 weeks in a year if i mean doing it once is bad doing it twice would be a lot but going back in for your third or your fourth or your fifth time where you know literally 14 days where you can't leave the room and you're just sitting in there watching Sopranos and, you know, being pretty glad that there's not a balcony. Like, it would get to you. It would do your head in. So I'm interested to see what happens here and I'm sure there will be blowback no matter what happens. Do you reckon these players will go to the IPL? Can you see that happening if they've skipped I, out I, of I do. Australian I mean, I, I, I sort of see why, why won't they? I mean, mm. they've... Skipped out of an Aussie tour, sure. And I get that, by the way. No criticism. I see no reason why they should go on this Australian tour to the Caribbean and Bangladesh. Um, I mean, I'd love them to go, but based on Hmm. um, what's just happened in the last few months, I I never expected this group to go. The the argument would be from a lot of people, you know, think of calling up the talkback line. You'd be saying, well, these guys are getting paid maybe a couple of million bucks from Cricket Australia in a year. Why aren't they going on an Australian tour? And why would they be allowed to go for an independent tournament where they're paid separately on top of that it's not like you know, people always talk about IPL money is crazy money but it's not actually necessarily that much more than a top tier Australian player is getting on their contract yeah I think it's just timing more than more than the the stature of the competition and the fact that the T20 World Cup will be squeezing that's that's what I meant when I said October November by the mm. way there's the IPL which will be in Abu Dhabi Dubai followed yeah. by the T20 World Cup so that they'll already be co-located mm. so I think that stands to reason that you know, I don't see any of them pulling out of the IPL when there's a, a T20 World Cup in, in the same country within weeks or the same cities even yeah. uh, within weeks of the IPL finishing, within days of the IPL finishing for that matter. So that'll all line up. Well, but then they come back from there, Jeff. Well, well they have two weeks of hotel quarantine. That's, sorry, just to come in. That, that's what I thought. That's why it actually makes sense to me. Like There will be complaints about it, but 
I would reckon going and playing the IPL is better warm-up and preparation than going on this West Indies tour in June, July. You know, playing in the UAE where the T20 World Cup will be right before it against a lot of the players who'll be in it, you know, being able to suss out those players on the field, suss out your opposition, see how they're playing and have an idea of how you're going to combat a whole bunch of the stars of the opposing teams when the World Cup is on. That actually seems like ideal preparation for your best players. And so would it be playing five T20s in the West Indies. Remember, they're only playing T20s in the West Indies to to discharge the World Mm. Cup Super League commitments first. Now, this is one of those things where I feel a bit sorry for the uh, the creators of the World Cup Super League because now it looks like these are kind of useless tack-on tours and they're not at all. They actually uh, are a good thing. Restricting one-day series to three matches, having context around them, having a, an organising structure that goes all the way through to associate cricket makes loads of sense and it does mean that each one-day international played in a four-year cycle does build into the, mm. the broader mainframe. I love all of that, but it's just not been... There's not, there's not enough education around it because it's been affected by COVID from the outset. So that'll get better in, in future cycles, I suppose. But yeah, uh, the point I was making there is that they'll leave the T20 World Cup. This will be the same for England, by the way. They'll fly into presumably Hobart and quarantine there because they're playing the test match against Afghanistan, I'd imagine, like within days of coming out of Hotel Q. Mm. I've even been thinking about it for Rach and Winnie and myself, like how do we land the ball as close to the pin as possible, not having a clue whether mm. it'll be 14 days, 10 days, quarantine at home, quarantine in the hotel. I mean, it's just impossible to read the tea leaves at the moment. But either way, mm. Afghanistan, the test match is inked in the schedule. Uh, we know when it's going to be in the final week of November. I think it starts on the mm-hmm. 24th or something like that, Jeff, of November, and then into the Ashes, and, and so it goes. And presumably between times, England will play a couple of tour games as quickly as they can the minute they exit Hotel Q. Mm. Or maybe they'll send their test players first and they'll they'll give them uh, you know, a, a game with what they've got here first, and then the white ball players will join a little bit later on. But yes, it's, um, it's all a bit scrappy. It's all a bit unfortunate, but I don't think there's any other way. It continues to be this pattern of just doing what they can to get on the park. And yep. and commerce ultimately will dictate the movements of the players. We saw that as recently as Saturday in the Euros uh, when Christian Eriksen went down and the fact that Denmark continued their game, whatever it was, three hours later. And I know that that was complicated by by messages coming out of the dressing room, but I mean, uh, you know, Peter Schmeichel uh, is sort of a great Denmark football saying afterwards that they that Denmark were told, well, this is just a, an example to show how influential money is and how influential the governing bodies can be. Well, if you don't play, you will forfeit the game. Mm. You know, uh, when, when push comes to shove, teams are reluctant to do something that would hurt them on the field in turn financially. Mm. So I'm sure they'll find a way to make this all work. Yeah, and uh, look, I would suspect that England will do intra-squad kind of stuff. They'll send out a bunch of players given... That, you know they'll they'll need a big chunk of players given how hard it is to to get players into Australia. So they'll probably do a concurrent Lions tour or whatever it is and and make it work that way. And as you said, send over. I mean, most of their test team won't be in the most of their current test team wouldn't be in the T Twenty side. Is is only a uh, well. I mean, out of the players who who rocked up at Edgebaston the other day, who Mark Wood is the only one I can think of who's. Probably. I think I think I think Root will be in the squad. Yeah, I think Root will be in the squad. Wood will be there. Press to think of anyone else. Oh, Dan Lawrence might be there. Mm. But still, you know, there'll be an extended squad yeah. in, in the in for the for the World Cups as well. They'll probably have to take twenty or so players because of COVID. Yeah. So thus, so they'll do it. Players from the Test group might end up over there as well as, as sub players. They'll do it in the way that Australia did with the scratch match at the Ashes, and the way that India's doing for the WTC final now, and, and play amongst mm. themselves rather than. 
getting a really good two day game in against the Caxi at Blacktown. You know that that perfect. Go on, play it, play it, play amongst yourselves. <laughs> play amongst yourselves. Be back for dinner. Remember that. Remember the Ellis Springs game. Like that is that is the uh, the absolute best example of this. Of just just board one board just rat fucking the other with preparation. Like <laughs> oh, you're on your way to to Adelaide, is it from Brisbane for the Ashes? Have a two day game in Alice Springs. Oh, the perfect preparation. <laughs> That'll sort you. You'll never, never know if you never, never go and all that. Yeah, have, yeah, have a two-day game Dawn where the territory. ground announcer makes racist jokes about Monty Panasso when he comes out to bat. That'll give you the true Australian hospitality. Speaking of uh, CA, there's been a fantastic appointment made to the board during the week, which I was really taken by. Greg Rowell, who we both know and have had a little bit to do with, and I've interviewed him in a, on another podcast, is, is um, joining the Cricket Australia board. Mm-hmm. That's a real win for the good guys here. Um, he's a lawyer in mm-hmm. Wollongabba, but of course has, has, has been very involved in, in local cricket and in Queensland cricket uh, for, a, well, all the time since he retired from Sheffield Shield cricket back, uh, I suppose it would have been late 90s when he finally mm. hung up the boots. But Yes, a fascinating career on the basis that the 94-95 Australia A summer mm. is kind of the, the pinnacle of it. Never played for his country as such, but played in that team and became a bit of a cult hero through that process as we went through on on the greatest season that was about Australia A. But yeah, I never thought this would happen because of his politics, really. I mean, he ran against Campbell Newman for Lord Mayor in 2008 for the Labor Party. The, the Cricket Australia have appointed someone who's aligned mm. to the Labor Party to the board when they're trying to line up Mike Baird to be the next fucking chairman yeah i mean great that that's a good thing i'm just surprised pleasantly surprised shall we say yeah the minister for casino construction mike baird um yeah (laughs) what a what a great day it'll be when he takes the reins it's it's a curious one as you say it's it's interesting how this has worked out i i would think that probably even people within campbell newman's party would have quite liked him to go away so you know maybe but not then but not this 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 was this was when this was when he was at the peak of his this was when newman was re-elected in 08 mm. with like with a thumping majority Rao didn't do well in that election but he was the he was the highest ranking liberal in the country because mm. labor had every state and federal government at that particular juncture and newman was a bit of a hero uh, at that time and a bit of a standard bearer it was later when he became premier uh, that the wheels fell off pretty quickly and he was he was one term in that job mm. then punted by the people but yeah, but still, like I just that was um, I, I kind of looked up like wow, like they've they've appointed Greg Rao to the Cricket Australia board. So yeah, he'll get a great run of it, I suppose. Uh, there's been a lot of change, as Daniel Bredig explained to us a couple of weeks mm-hmm. ago. Not a lot of experience on that board right now for people who've been there for a long time. So um, he's part of that generation change. Yeah, uh, well, they've been needing uh, some some uh, freshening up at the top. So uh, hopefully that can happen. I suppose with um, yeah. It, uh, a couple of appointments with credibility in the last uh, year or so. We wish him well. Uh, we also wish Nick Hockley well, who uh, we've talked about his appointment to the chief executive role at Cricket Australia. He's been on Media Street big time in the last two or three weeks, Jeff. He's been doing all the various sit-down interviews and all the podcasts. I was wondering whether we should get him on, uh, mm. him to join us on The Final Word at some point. I reckon that could be quite good fun. Do you, this is a bit of a question without notice, but should we ask Nick Hockley to come on the show? Um, what's his position on flavoured milks? Uh, does he have a favourite? Is, <laughs> is he a fan? Uh, would he be willing to do a live milk round with us if we say if we teed it I up? I reckon. Uh, well, he, he, well he, went on, he had some fun with the great cricketer fellas, so I, I reckon he might be up for it if we tee him up nice and early. So well, let's do that. Let's try and get... Um, Nick Hockley to join us with mm. a carton of milk at some point yeah. uh, in the coming weeks. Before that, we will have a World Test Championship final to talk about. 
Now, that decider can be played over six days, which could mean a lot of final word daily. The, the weather isn't crash hot. Uh, mm. Different weather apps say different things, but it will be affected by rain. It could be one of those situations when they um, they, they could get through six days and still um, still not have a result, in which case the the uh, the trophy, the mace, the mace will be shared. I don't know if you saw this yesterday, Jeff, but no. back in the good old days, the um, I say the good old days, the, um, the mace was given out to the team ranked number one. I remember it. It occasionally would be presented in really strange settings. Yeah. Uh, that is, it would be you know it would be airport oh, lounges or, or yeah yeah they, they've they've won this test match and and thus in the middle of a series yeah. you, you get the mace well now the mace is being repurposed as the trophy for the world test championship final wow. I got that email through from okay. uh, the ICC yesterday so but we'll yep. be doing daily shows so the question throughout. is does the captain of the winning team get to get on a horse with the mace and then like <laughs> gallop at an opponent and like smash their head <laughs> off or something because that like that's going to bring eyeballs to the sport you know if you want, yeah. it's all about bringing kids to the sport and they're all into their MMA and, and whatnot and, you know, apparently all the YouTube influencers are into boxing now. What if cricket was smashing heads off with a mace? <laughs> what if that was, what if the stakes were that high? That would get people involved. That brings eyeballs. Literally, okay. eyeballs would oh, be I everywhere. I think you're onto something. I think you're onto something. So there's the mace they're playing for. Mm-hmm. They said it'll be shared if the game is drawn. Mm. So I wonder whether that means it'll be like a custodial arrangement where, you know, Brad Coley gets to have it and Kane Williamson on weekend. Yeah. Every second weekend, yeah. Kane Williamson gets to have the mace or vice versa. Or maybe shared custody where, like, school holidays, <laughs> yeah. they have a certain thing where they get one week each. Well, they go, maybe, um, you know, but, uh, hopefully they're on good terms. Maybe they can go on holiday together and they can take the mace with them, you know, <laughs> show, show the mace around. Yeah, wasn't there a celebrity couple? Someone will pull me up in the comments on this who did this recently there was a celebrity couple uh, no it was Michael Clark Michael Clark uh, there was a big uh, report that he got back together with his ex-wife because they'd all been on holiday together no 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 we just get on really well and we're having a, a family holiday despite the fact that mm-hmm. we've consciously uncoupled or, or whatever the jargon is okay. these days with celebrities when they are no longer together so no but yes what do we know we know that uh we know that AJ Patel's going to play Jeff mm-hmm. and this excites me he bowled so well at Edgbaston mm-hmm. last week with his four wickets simple approach you know, nothing particularly special looking about the guy. Simple about approach. Five foot eight. He, he walks. He, he, it's like he's going to the fridge. Like, he just walks <laughs> up and stops. He doesn't even take a step to follow through. He just goes, loop, and then somehow he gets this nice bounce and he lands it on the spot. Yeah, they talk about trying to get over the front leg. He doesn't do mm. much of that. It's just, uh, it's all it's all kind of shoulder and yeah. finger. So he's playing. Uh, Mitchell Sutton has been left out. Will Young is the spare bat for New Zealand, mm. and all the fast bowlers are in the squad. So they'll make their decision. It's a group of 15. Presumably, we'll find out India's squad later today after we've recorded. But as we discussed on the uh, Daily Show a couple of days ago mm-hmm. from Edgbaston, we we really know what the Indian group is going to be, and we know the decisions they need to make. We know pretty who, much boils down to. We know who to, the twelve are. Well, it's just really about well, well, yeah, who how it works. Well, out. We sort of do, don't we? Yeah. Well, how does Jadeja get in the team? The, the question is, how do they get Ashwin, Jadeja, and the right balance of fast bowlers all there? Yeah. If they play three quicks. They can do it. But if they want to play four quicks, as New Zealand probably will, I know Colin de Grandholm will be the swing man for New mm. Zealand. If, but, it, but then to get four quicks in, you need to leave out de Grandholm and play yep. Patel. For India, it's a fraction different. They're all rounder, so to speak. It would have to be Jadeja, and he might have to bat 
quite high up to enable four fast bowlers and Ashwin to play. That's the issue. Mm. Uh, I mean, again, I, I, I think I said the other day, I can't believe we're talking about Jadeja missing another high-profile test match at the start of a series. He mm. seems to play after they've lost early on. They, they bring him <laughs> in when they're 1-0 down or yeah. something like that. Well, this time they don't get that opportunity. It's one and out. It's a final. It's a decider yeah. in a one-off way. So I, I reckon that they do well to reconsider that. And yes, it might mean they can only go in with three quicks, but... I mean, three quicks plus Jadeja with his batting, with his fielding, with with what he can do mm-hmm. as an all-round package. Mm-hmm. I just can't see any other way. They have to pull that rein. I know it's not going to turn big down there, but yep. it's not just about turn with Jadeja. It's about control and it's about what he can do down the order with the bat. It's it, you, you look at that Southampton surface, generally it's not hugely exciting. It doesn't do a massive amount, but it can spin. And it can spin when it's been dry, and it's been pretty dry for the last month or so down there. So it's likely to turn, and particularly if you get some play on it over the course of six days, that's going to keep happening. Having two spinners is going to be a better option Mm. than having one spinner. I mean, there's almost no bad surface to have a good spinner on. If you have a spinner who can hit a good length, there's always this obsession with playing fast bowlers on a surface that you think might help them. But... In almost any circumstance, you're better off having a decent spinner as long as you've got some some quick bowlers to back them up. So I think there'll be a strong temptation to go with the four quicks, but you don't necessarily need four quicks. Like if, if you've got a decent surface, three quicks can do that job. But to be able to rely on two different kinds of spin to have bowlers who can turn the ball either way, away from left-handers or right-handers, it just helps so much and it helps your fast bowlers bowl better because they can get a break, they can get a rest and come back after an hour when 20 runs have been scored and the opposition's feeling squeezed. It, it, can, it can add so much when they come back rather than coming back after a part-time has been bowling and, and it's been a bit of a relaxation stint. So I think that he's got to play. I don't think that necessarily means that he will, but I think he has to for, for India to have their best chance. And so then it's, it's a three paceman attack it's Boomer, obviously it's Ishant Sharma and it's probably Shami just on seniority because those are the three who've, who've done so much work for this test team and they deserve the go but Siraj is such a, a, a popular choice at the moment within the Indian camp Kohli loves him Shastri loves him he's risen to the occasion whenever he's been asked to and so there will be that strong temptation to get him in at the expense of somebody yeah, I think that's the right combination. Look, if Jadeja bowls seam up, that'd be handy. Maybe mm. he should. Maybe Jadeja... This week, I'm going to bowl left arm medium pace to um, help bolster the credentials for him. Because yep. that, that will be the thing. It'll be, well, who's going to bowl second change? And it's mm. going to be a spinner early on. And yeah. on the other but hand, he Ashwin's shown bowl an attitude up, doing in, that in quite early. It, like, he almost can bowl seam up. Yes. He sometimes bowls the, the, just those faster arm balls and they swing in the air a bit and they drift. You know, he, he can be... He's six different kinds of bowlers... And he is a fielder who will get you a wicket by his fielding alone. Out of the 20 wickets in a test match, he'll get you one. He might we'll get you two. One of them. He might yeah. get you three. Um, and he might save you 30 runs in an innings in the field. So I just think there's so much more to, to him than, than just the bowling. And you put it all in a package. You have to have him. Yeah, and, and you, you complement 
uh, he, you, you put that alongside a batting lineup which has the engine room of, of course, Coley, Rahane, mm. Pajara. We saw the way that Shubham Gill sort of lit the world up in Australia back at the start of the year. Rohit Sharma. I mean, it is an imposing team. So it, no, no matter how excited you might be getting around New Zealand right now, mm. and I get it. I've just watched them play two test matches and perform exceptionally well. Look, it's, it's, it's a daunting Indian team at full strength, mm. more or less, at the moment. So cannot wait for that. It begins on Friday down at the Rose Bowl and a reminder that we will be here every night uh, doing the final word daily. Jeff, we'll be doing it for uh, eight days. Pu- I just want to make sure that we're clear on this because we'll be doing it eight yes. days running. The first two days will be the first two days of the women's test. The next two days will be both the women's test and the first two days of the test championship final. And then we'll have four more days because it's a six-day championship final. So we'll have eight days of daily back-to-back-to-back. To back to back. We, we used to do the daily when there were double headers in the Men's World Cup in 2019. We found a way of like doing two games at the same time. You might have to go back and listen to our back catalogue to work out how we distinguish between the two because, yeah, I'll be at the women's test doing uh, broadcasting on that. You'll be watching the men's Mm -hmm. test on those two days when when we've crossed over because you'll be working for The Guardian Mm -hmm. and then I'll be working for The Guardian on the men's test Mm -hmm. after the conclusion of the women's test. So we'll we'll be all over it here on the show. Jeff, before we get to Nerd Pledge and talk to Snahal, we couldn't uh, leave this section without remarking upon uh, Shakib Al Hassan's (laughs) extraordinary tantrum if we're doing a hall of fame today uh, this would be that oh. i reckon i've watched it like 40 times just how quickly he decides to boot the stumps over and the ferocity in which he goes to the other end and pulls the other stumps out of the ground and slams yeah. them in the turf it's it was compelling viewing when it was doing the it would have been a perfect vine when vine was still yeah. a thing having six seconds you could have fit you could have fit the whole thing into about six seconds mm-hmm. yeah absolutely it would have been and this was in a domestic domestic match in Bangladesh you know this is a guy who's who's lost big World Cup games you know this is this is a guy who's been to the pinnacle he's won test matches why is he losing it in a local Bangladesh game like what's what is there to be <laughs> mad about uh, he's 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 hit the guy on the pad having a sweep he thinks it's out umpire says not out and immediately he's gone the full Michael holding like put your boot in the sky and then started yelling in the umpire's face and the other bit is like that's some minutes later that's I think that's a couple of overs later when they they call it they're going off because it started raining and he just decides to have another crack walks up pulls all three stumps out of the ground and hurls them down the pitch it's like I was watching a YouTube video the other day of I can't remember which baseball manager it was, but having a meltdown where he, where he goes out and pulls pulls a couple of the bases out of the field and walks off with them. <laughs> like, like he's, I think it's 20-odd years ago, but he's like, all right, no one's finishing this game. This, this umpiring is such bullshit that I'm going to take second base and third base and leave with them you know, um, while I'm being ejected. And it was like that. And it's, I mean... It's hilarious, but it also makes me real. There's a definite double standard here where, you know, if an Australian player did this, we'd be shaking our heads and, and clicking our tongues and saying what a terrible influence it is or, or example and all the rest of it. Maybe it's just because we're Australian and so we feel like it reflects on us in some way. But when someone does it for another country, I'm like, that's hilarious. Let's watch it again. Why is it so funny just because it was a Bangladeshi player? Shakib Al-Hassan, thank you for being a friend. Uh, Jeff, uh, before we go to our break, mm-hmm. I think we have just enough time for a little bit of... Nerd Pledge! Nerd Pledge. That's the game that we play uh, with the people on our patron page. It's a quiz, a reverse quiz. You quiz us. People who support the show, they send us a donation, and that is an amount of currency that relates to cricket, a number that relates to cricket, and we have to work out what the number means. 
And I'm just checking as we start the segment, Jeff, whether we've overtaken James. We, we've, we've, we're one behind Jimmy. We're 616 at the end of Anderson's series uh-huh. against New Zealand. So at one stage, we're back to about 600. We're back up to 616 at the midway point of June. So we should, hopefully, all things being equal, if you're enjoying what we're doing on The Final Word, we should be able to get beyond Jimmy by the time he were next to take the ball in a test match, which will be, I suppose, the 4th of August. Mm-hmm. So we have time on our side and Jeff we have a pledge in today just one from Stuart Duncan 178 it didn't come with a clue mm-hmm. so Jeff you can take it as you see fit have fun Stuart Duncan that is a good Scottish name we've had a few good Scottish names on the show but that one's right up there uh, $1.78 so look the first thing that came to mind when I saw this um, that the, the number that popped into my head immediately was is this Mitchell Stark's bowling strike rate from the 2015 World Cup. Naturally, as, as would occur to most people, because <laughs> I knew it was around that and I thought it's not quite right. More like 12, close. wasn't it? No, the average was the average was 10, but the strike rate, as in yeah, yeah. every 17 deliveries. So, the, But that was 17.4 uh, for Mitchell Stark, not 17.8. So 178 doesn't quite fit there. Uh, but that did get me looking at bowling numbers and uh, 17.8 was the test bowling average of a couple of players Albert Rose Innes who played two tests for South Africa in 1889 uh, and Joan Lillian Hawes who played three tests for England in 1957-58 probably not either of those but the bowling strike rate of 17.8 in T20 cricket was the statistic returned by the doc Shelley Nitschke who took a wicket every 17.8 overs that she bowled for Australia while taking 43 T20 wickets with her left arm spin. You say the first thing you think of when you see 17.8 or 1.78 is Mitchell Stark's uh, strike rate at the 2015 World Cup. When I see Joan Lillian Hawes on the screen, the first thing I'm thinking is, ooh, is it possible that's a relation of Keely Hawes, mm-hmm. who, of course, was the innocent D.I. Denton in, in Line of Duty, oh. among other things. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find that out. Okay. D.I. Denton, she wasn't bent. Uh, and and if, if you've got a different view, I'm not hearing it. I'll look up that during <laughs> the week, Joan Lillian Hawes. Okay, back to Shelley Nitschke. Bent Copperus. Yeah, well, Shelley debuted in... in 2004 and 2005 across the three formats and was still around when they were starting the Women's Big Bash a decade later as the the kind of veteran player at that point for Adelaide. She's the one who bowled the super over in the T20 World Cup in, in 2010. There was a group game against England where Australia played England, came down to a super over. Australia had a bad one, lost a couple of wickets, only made six runs. We're going to a super over! and And she had to bowl it and they tied. So there was a tied super over in a World Cup before... England and New Zealand in 2019. <laughs> but it wasn't in the final. It was only in a group game. But Australia won on boundary count back. So England actually had been dudded by that rule in an ICC tournament before uh, because they did it Brilliant. on the number of sixes hit. Um, England didn't manage to hit a six that day and Australia had Jess Cameron who could hit sixes and did. So uh, Australia won. That's an even worse system. Mm. I mean, like, I mean, the boundary count back system is a dog shit. But the how many sixes did mm. you plonk through the court? I mean, that's... So I, I wonder what the so what was it? How many did England? Do you know how many England hit in that game? None. They didn't hit one. Didn't hit a six. None. Yeah, they hit no sixes in that game. So none. Yeah, never had a crash. Well, 
I think it was it was those early days of T20 cricket when it was all about you have to hit sixes. That's the only thing you're here for. And so they made the boundary countback was only on sixes. This is T20. You hit sixes. And England, but they weren't really a six-hitting team at that time. You know, they were a stroke-making team. They were a, a Charlotte Edwards team, you know, not really a, a clear-the-ropes mm. team. Um, yeah, so that's how that worked out. Um, Shelley's been coaching the Scorchers, hasn't she? Perth Scorchers the last couple of years in the... WBBL. She was the yeah. She was the assistant coach mm. with the Australian team for a while there too. So she's yeah, very much still uh, front and centre mm. of the Australian setup. Now, do you remember Shane Warne taking a stack of wickets against Pakistan in 1995, and and Ahmed Sohail being stumped, the left-hander getting going down on one knee for the sweep, and and he gets one that doesn't turn much, and it beats his outside edge, and he's dragged his back foot, and Healy stumps him while he's still down on one knee. Does that does that ring a bell? That one doesn't, but that was something Healy did so well and warned too mm. that he would bowl top spinners to left-handers go over the top of the horizontal blade and Healy knew it was coming, of course, because he's a fucking genius and would have his gloves above his head mm-hmm. ready to go and pull the ball down almost. That was how he would execute the stumping. So I'm not surprised to hear that's how Amir Sahail got out to warn at one stage. No. So I bring that up. The reason for that is that that was Shane Warne's 178th test wicket. Uh, ah, just a, very good. Just a new very little metric like I'm it. looking at. Um, <laughs> it seemed like a good one, worth mentioning. And well, I mean, you know, with Glenn McGrath, we could we could actually make this a Glenn McGrath bit mm. because McGrath, if you give him a number mm. between zero and how many test wickets did McGrath take? Six six fifty, six six fifty. Four, four, six fifty, six fifty something. No, it couldn't. No, five. No, it's five. Sorry, five, five, six, five, six, seven. Five six seven. Five, five six, six, seven, six four. It is. Five six four. You give McGrath a number between zero and five six four, he'll tell you what the wicket was, mm. how he got it, on what series, in what year. <laughs> so he would go, Oh, one seven eight. Well, okay, one yeah. seven eight. Let's let, you know, that was that was the ninety seven ashes yeah. when I had, you know, Mike Atherton caught behind it uh-huh. at Headingley or something All like right. that. We should do it. Get him on the show and do it as a party piece. We'll just do every oh, actually, every this nerd is, pledge this is, number. This is spot on. This this could not be more story time energy. We should get Glenn McGrath on story time <laughs> purely with a bunch of numbers yeah. that are under... Oh, Jeff, now we're fucking cooking with gas to go back to line of duty. <laughs> we should get Glenn McGrath on story time to do a series of numbers that come clueless mm-hmm. and he can walk us through each wicket. And I'm pretty sure Pidge would do that too. I'm going to get on that during the week. All right, all right. <laughs> I'm glad we've got a new idea. Um, so, yeah, so, so that was Shane Warne's wicket, 178, 178 being our number. And then as for scores of people who've made 178 in a test match, you've seen one, Adam, You at, at a rare test match where I wasn't there. Have and I? You were the, and um, you give were me, there. Give me a, give me a hint. Well, that, that, give me a hint. That's the hint. You were there and I wasn't. Um, oh, you, okay. I was there and you went there. Uh, I went to India yeah. in 2017 and you didn't. Is mm-hmm. it on that tour? Is it uh, Steve Smith at Rancho Relaxo? That's it. Yep. Ah, bosh. The one that, according to Al Jazeera, like uh, Steve Smith was fixing at the time or some <laughs> yeah. shit. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> While making 178 not out. Um, he wasn't very good at it. <laughs> didn't, didn't work out too well. So, uh, and, and there's also the... Um, the VVS Lakshman 178 from Sydney in 2004. Oh, that's the best innings I've seen. Mm. Yeah. That's yeah. the best. That's the aesthetically the best innings I've seen. Lakshman, Sydney. I mean, there's highlights from the Indian commentary on YouTube. Mm-hmm. I mean, just um, just dim the lights, get the baby oil out, and away you go. It's just something else. <laughs> He's driving down the ground. Yeah. Especially his on driving, which weren't uh, they weren't really on drives. It was more like mm. he made a decision to clip through mid wicket, but instead of clipping through mid wicket, he thought, "What I'll do is I'll just clip next to the umpire, mm. and I'll do it that way instead, just for a laugh." 
just because I can. It worked out pretty well for him, 178 <laughs> runs later. Um, and so in, in terms of like the, the list of players who've made 178, it's an absolute gold standard list. If you get rid of, I reckon, Keith Fletcher and Graham Hick are probably the only like non-legends on that list because the 178s, right. Joe Darling, Jack Hobbs, Neil Harvey, and then it goes Sobers, Lloyd, Richards, Hooper, Lara, just West Indies royalty on the 178s, and then Lakshman, Davilius, Smith. It's a pretty good list Fantastic. of who's taken those. And the one last little bit to wrap it up is uh, I just mentioned Neil Harvey making 178. Guess what his cap number is, Neil Harvey, oh, cap number beautiful. 178. Very, very nice, Jeff. Thank you, Stuart Duncan. Uh, this has been Nerd Pledge. This has been the first segment of our show today. Final word, weekly. Don't know why I'm calling it the final word weekly. I just feel like I have to discern between that and other shows we're making at the moment. Either I think way, it's kind of. I think it's become that now. Maybe that's what it yes. is. Yes. Um, but way. if you want to play, if you want to play Nerd Pledge, send us a number. Go to Patreon.com/slash The Final Word. You set up your number. We'll get it. We'll put it on our list. We'll do it on the show. And Stuart, if that number, my answers went right, drop us a message on the DMs, and we'll come back to it on Story Time. Let's talk about the best cricket magazine in the world, and we'll be back after that with Snahal Pradhan. G'day guys, this is Jimmy Neesham. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lehman. It's the magazine that comes out once a month. The only one. The Wisdom Cricket Monthly. The best the cricket only one. in the world. The, the only, only magazine one. that comes out once a month. That's it. This is the only one. There's only one month. One magazine that had that idea. They thought, you know what, 12 times a year, that'll be good. Let's space it out. That's why they put it in the name. Wisdom Cricket Monthly, there's the clue. And they had an interesting month because they, they lined up a big interview with Ollie Robinson, p- had him on the cover and all the rest of it, and then uh, the, the story happened, as you know. So but to balance that out with the, uh, the editorial introduction from Phil Walker, which I have to say is a very good one. Yeah, that, that's right. So Ollie Robinson is still on the cover along with nine other England fast bowlers. And it's a great feature anyway. It was going to be about how there's these, all these emerging England fast bowlers like Robinson, Stone, Overton, and, and they're alongside Broad, Anderson, Wood, Archer. I saw Sakiba Mood Bowl um, two weeks ago, Jeff, at the Roses game, and he's ready to play test cricket as well. He's also yeah. in there on the edge of the cover. And it's quite symbolic that Sakiba Mood's the, the, the furthest face to the side, which to me symbolises that he could be the guy that's coming from stage left that they've not even thought about in mm. terms of an Ashes birth potential. Potentially uh, later this year, but yeah, I, I think it was really well handled by Phil in the editorial, the, the editor's letter off the front to explain what a torturous week it was at Lords, really for, for those who followed the game closely, but also uh, knowing full well uh, how the culture war was going to take shape. And we went through that last week with Vish, of course, but Phil's contributions are an important one. As is the interview that Joe Harmon's done with Ollie Robinson. Uh, I know he has put a lot of work into that, and um, Robinson spoke quite with quite a lot of contrition about how he was before as well. Mm. So, yeah, there's a lot going on there, but they couldn't, you know, they couldn't not take it on, could they? I mean, the magazine coming out a week after the Lord's Test, they had to be front and centre. They never shirk from a big issue at Wisdom Cricket Monthly. So, uh, yeah, a lot in there on this. There's also a, a nice sort of bookend to that in that, aside from the interviews with uh, Stone, Robinson and, and Overton, uh, there's also a, an interview with Norman Cowens about his Test career and the... Mm. The good and the bad parts there. It's got a, an interview with Temba Bavuma as well about taking on the white ball captaincy yes. w- with Neil Manthorpe. Um, so plenty going on. I particularly enjoyed this bit, Adam. Uh, Lawrence Booth reports on the game taking hold in Brazil. Ah, 
everybody wants a piece of Brazil now, don't they? Uh, we do it on the final word and suddenly everyone else, oh, they're playing cricket in Brazil. Brazil's ours. We saw it first. Yeah, but you know, that sounds a bit. Um, isn't that what the Portuguese said? Uh, yeah, no, uh, yeah. but Lawrence, I'm sure, has done a great job there. I haven't actually read the piece yet. They've done another bit that we've been talking about on the show too. Uh, Phil and Joe and the others uh, who work at the magazine have tried to look at the World Test Championship and think about how it could be remodelled in in future iterations. I've had a look at. I'll this tell place. you what. This is just because they're not in the final. England's not in the final. So they're like, oh, we need to remodel the World Test Championship. You're not there. I'm sorry. It's happening at your ground, but you're They're not right, in it. though. They're right, though. I might get, I might get um, Joe to come on and have a chat about that in future weeks because I think between the two of us, we've sort of found a, a middle path here um, mm-hmm. that involves all test-playing nations, not just the nine, who have been included so far. Well, now that you've sorted the World Cup and the ICC have taken your World Cup model on, um, exactly. maybe you can just pass them the notes pass them your notes for the WTC and, and sort that out. I couldn't agree more. I had a conversation with the um, with the MCC uh, a couple of weeks ago around the Law 42, around appealing, and I think we're going to get the celebrity appeal sorted out at some point as well. Watch this space. That's not in the magazine. Maybe I should put that in the magazine next month. Yeah. The county files. So this is where they've made a decision to continue <laughs> dedicated coverage of the county game month in, month out. So not just when they're mm-hmm. playing in April and May and, and you know at the end of the year, but... This is where they find one quirky story for all of the mm. 18 counties and, and tell it mm. in a nice sort of short four to 500 words fashion, which works well. This is my favourite bit for thinking when we do this segment when I'm like, how can I sell this magazine to Australian readers? And I'm like, you know, like in The Matrix, what if I told you that you could have exclusive interviews with Chris Dent and Billy Godelman? Huh? Huh? How about that? <laughs> <laughs> that, that well, not a, I, if, if the world was fair, Chris Dent would be on the plane to Australia at the end of the year at least as a backup mm. opener. Maybe he will be based on the way England's going at the moment. Mm. Kieran Carlson's also in the uh, county files. Yeah. Final words own, Kieran Carlson's. So don't completely undermine that idea that he did spend time in Australia, as we know. As did Harry Gurney, played for the Renegades he with did. great success. He did. There's a wonderful piece, which I'm, I've seen the um, layout of, but yet to get into it properly, but I can just tell it's going to be a belter. It's 100 years since the 345 made by Charlie McCartney at Nottingham. I mean, that's right in story time feels there, isn't it? We've discussed it, I reckon, on six different story time shows. We've discussed the 345 <laughs> by Charlie McCartney. So, yes. Yes, it is. As is Andy Zaltzman's column, which is entirely about the significance of the number 200 uh, as an even number in Good. In well, it's history. good. Uh, he's timed it well, hasn't he? He would have filed that before Devin Conway. Mm. So, and maybe they had enough time to put a little, oh. a little postscript in there. Yeah, I didn't think of that. Yeah. I just assumed he wrote it after Conway. No, he no, wrote it before Conway. He, he must have. He's I mean, played an absolute blinder. Well, they were putting the magazine to bed just when everything was blowing up at Lords, or the couple of days yeah. after. So I think, knowing Zaltzman, he's got immaculate timing. Uh, Isabel Westbury, her column is about women's test cricket and why it isn't a luxury, why it's important to invest in it. I'm sure she's done a great job there. Andrew Miller expresses his frustration and everything being about the fucking ashes. He says that, uh, uh, that you know, uh, Chris Silverwood's comments were unbecoming before uh, this series. Mm. And after this series, he doubled down. I wrote about this in The Guardian the other yes, day. He did. just went back to the same well uh, <laughs> after the series. Oh, oh, really, you know, looking forward to getting this team together for the ashes. You've got five tests against India first. Maybe think yeah. about that. Lizzie Abbott in her, in her county piece uh, talks about how revolutionary county streaming has been uh, not just... Uh, not just uh, with white ball cricket now with the blast with the numbers going crazy, but in the eight rounds of the championship uh, we have had so far. There's loads there, Jeff. It's a fabulous magazine. It's made with love. Uh, it is the best cricket magazine in the world. And because you're friends with us and you're listening to this show, you can get yourself a healthy 44% discount to read it 
on your iPad or other tablets are out there too, not not iPads. I can't think of any others. Your Kindle, uh-huh. probably. Yep. And that's all for 10 quid for six editions or 15 Australian dollars. And all you need to do is to go to bit.ly forward mm-hmm. slash WCMTFW, bit.ly forward slash it's in the show notes don't listen to him don't listen to him it's in the show notes and if you put that in you don't need you don't need a code usually we say at this point here's the offer code right no code required that link unlocks everything Mm. it's a 44 percent discount it's done why wouldn't you want to get your hands on 44 it's it's an auspicious number it's the number worn on the back of geelong defender Corey enright number 44 john 44 years john platten war 44 four-time hawthorne premiership player 44 years, the, the drought-breaking premiership for the Cats in 07, 44 years since 1963. I mean, you know, 44, the US President Barack Obama, number 44. I mean, get into it. Why wouldn't you want 44% off? Get amongst it. Wisdom Cricket Monthly, the best cricket mag in the world, in proud association with The Final Word. Hi, I'm Ebony Rainford-Brent, and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. It's the final word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Uh, with us today for our feature interview is Nahal Pradhan, who is a former Indian international cricketer, but these days one of the most important voices in Indian women's cricket, uh, both as a broadcaster and as a writer. She's been instrumental in driving the debate forward in so many different ways, and we're thrilled to have you with us today, Snahal. First of all, you must be really excited, the fact that India's women are going to be taking the field for a test match tomorrow at Bristol for the first time in seven years. I mean, it's a, it's a big achievement. It's a big day. Yeah, it's a, it's a special occasion. And I, I think the best way to kind of um, convey how excited about I am about this and, you know, how uh, much of a big deal I think it is, is um, I'm, I'm not the kind of person who, uh, you know, believes that God kind of has a role to play in how things turn out on the cricket field. I mean, the cricket field is always, you know, the better person wins and loses. Uh, Whenever I play, I never think about, you know, okay, please let us get this result. But this morning, just, you know, for uh, a little bit when uh, I prayed, I prayed, let the girls have a good one. Because, I mean, it's just such a big one. And I allowed myself a little bit of that indulgence. And I uh, I think this is the kind of occasion that deserves it. And uh, there's no really better way to put that across. I think you're entirely entitled to doing just that, uh, given the amount of time you've spent uh, arguing that there should be uh, test cricket for Indian India's women, uh, which just hasn't been there for the time you've been a journalist and the time you've been outside of the game as a player. I mean, it, it is unusual how this has come to pass, though, isn't it? it it's, it's not in the context of there being red ball cricket played in, in India. Uh, that hasn't been the case since 2018-19. It's... An announcement that struck us all a bit by surprise, I suppose. And now there are going to be two tests for your team in the space of six months. I mean, it's a bit of a whirlwind. Yeah, when it rains, I mean, we get buckets, I suppose. Uh, Why and how this has happened is a little bit of a mystery to me. The fact that, you know, a board that has traditionally not been the most proactive when it comes to these kind of things suddenly is uh, talking about tests with the two countries who are currently playing it. And... I'm, you know, uh, not going to look a gift horse in the mouth at all. And the fact that these conversations are happening and they are thinking that way is great. Again, it's it's a little bit of a mystery as to how long this will continue, whether this will be a uh, consistent thing. The last time India played a test, there were two tests pretty much back to back. There was that test away against England, which they famously won. And then uh, shortly after a test against South Africa and then nothing. You know, part of me is slightly worried what's going to happen after these two tests. 
is this going to be something consistent i hope it is because uh, just from the player's point of view it is just such a such a big part of a journey to uh, be a part of a format like this that's the part that does get you worried isn't it is is how casually this seemed to come about even to the fact that it wasn't formally announced before being made public by BCCI officials on Twitter. It, it was just sort of tossed out there that, oh, yes, we'll be playing a test against England and also we'll be playing a test against Australia, neither of whom who had actually announced that as part of the schedule. And so at that point, the, those two boards were pressured into going along with it, even if they didn't want to because it had already been put out there. And there is that worry that if it's if it's so easy to do, it's also very easy to take away. And and, and that curious contrast that this is a board that's, that's not doing anything to get a women's IPL going, but is suddenly wanting to play women's test cricket despite not having done so since 2014. Yeah, so like I said, it's, it's puzzling as to uh, how this suddenly came about. I'm not going to really get into it because... It is a good thing. There's absolutely no two ways about that. The fact is that women's tests are uh, probably not the most uh, financially priority format for any board. Uh, But if there is a board or if there are boards that can really indulge in uh, women's tests financially and maybe indulge is the wrong word, invest in women's tests financially, then it is Australia, England and India. And it's good to see those three countries uh, are going to be playing tests uh, this year. Um, I mean, with the ashes also coming up uh, later. So that's, it's again, I really hope this is a trend. What would be great to see, and um, I think it's very doable, is for any visiting team that comes to Indian shores to play a test match because the host team is the one that takes care of all the expenditure when a visiting team comes over. So there is really nothing stopping the BCCI in terms of financial resources to put together a test every time a host na- every time a visiting team comes uh, to indian shores and that would be the supreme uh, demonstration of commitment to the growth of the test format from probably the only board that can afford it on uh, on such a large scale and it it would really change the face of women's cricket women's test cricket let's see i mean that's wishful thinking yeah, I mean, there's, there's been a lot of reductive arguments about multi-day women's cricket, mostly along familiar lines, right? It costs too much money, therefore um, we needn't bother with it. You wrote about this at length last year in your report, An Equal Hue, The Way Forward for the Women in Blue, which was a report on sort of the growth of uh, women's cricket in India. Um, yourself, Karunya Keshav, who we had on the show a couple of weeks ago, and the late Sid Patnaik. And you, you have there a wonderful survey with so many players involved in it where you're referring to 98% or something like that of uh, women who are surveyed want to play multi-day cricket, yet the BCCI pulled the rug under that, from under that rather in 2018-19. I mean, you're looking at Julanga Zwami, who badly wants to play it again based on the extra challenges it presents her as a player. Having had that experience, been around for such a long period of time, the skill and pride that women can derive from playing the, the format of the game that's held up as the, the supreme test... And and the, you know men are always saying that Test cricket is the is the pinnacle of the sport, and yet there've only been eight Test matches played in the last decade, and India only played in two of them. So there's this there's this big philosophical uh, gap to bridge, um, but it, it feels clear to me that those inside the tent, those who play the game, women in the game want this to happen. It's not as the the ambiguity comes from people off the pitch, administrators. 
Yeah, there's no question about that. And I will um, uh, acknowledge that for a number of countries, for example, New Zealand, who have an official stance towards, you know, focusing on T20 and ODI cricket, uh, for a number of countries, the financial realities just don't permit uh, these kind of investments in the game, no matter how they how well they may be aligned with what their players want. I mean, Susie Bates, one of the greatest players of all time to maybe not play a test ever in her career. That's, I mean, that's the kind of stat that's going to hurt at the end of a career. Julian once told me that if women played tests regularly, she would have been a test format specialist. She would have, uh, she could very well have seen herself quitting uh, ODI and the T20 format, which she eventually did uh, quit, but she would have very happily committed to the long form of the game as uh, the one form where, which she wants to stick to. So there's absolutely no question that uh, the players want it. And then it, it kind of becomes the duty of boards who can afford it, where boards who don't have that financial restriction uh, to almost enable that because just, just, there's, there's another side to this, which I argued in 2014, that it's in India's best interest to play more tests because going back to 2014, the test format, India were well suited for the test format because that was a stage where India were not able to really get a lot of momentum and impetus in their limited overs game. Uh, their skills basically were really built around occupying the crease rather than you know scoring quickly. So I argued in 2014 that it's it would be great for uh, women, India women specifically to play more tests because they're more likely to win more tests because of uh, the, the natural uh, alignment with the style of play in 2014. And style of play obviously has changed quite a bit. But uh, the fact remains that if, if they can come away with a win in one of these test matches, it will be talked about and it will contribute to the growth of the game mm. um, probably more than a series win uh, in ODIs or T20s against England, for sure, not probably. Hmm. Obviously, the challenge for any of the countries who want to play women's tests is the lack of women's multi-day cricket domestically to underpin that. That's something you looked at at length in the report, the domestic structure. And while there was red ball cricket up to a couple of years ago, I mean, my understanding of it was that the the standard couldn't get very high because it wasn't supported, it wasn't funded, it was players basically paying their own expenses to be there and, and not being paid to play and all of the rest of it. What sort of structure was there before? What has been lost with the cancellation of, of that particular format? And where is the, the domestic scene now? What needs to be done? Um, as far as I know, it wasn't a question of uh, the players not being supported because those games um, were played at an interzonal level. So all the state teams were basically divided into five geographical zones. And those five geographical zone teams were playing against each other uh, in a three-day tournament, which I thought made perfect sense. Because if you want to play the longer format, you want to give your creme de la creme exposure to that format, considering that that's the pool from which you might pick a test side, then that also makes it easier to conduct a, a three-day tournament like that. Because you know, three five teams versus thirty-seven teams is is a completely different calculation. But as far as I know, the players were receiving match fees for those games, so there wasn't a question of uh, players having to spend from their own pocket for those tournaments itself. And it was ended in two thousand eighteen uh, with in a very arbitrary fashion. So there was absolutely no clarity as to why 
it uh, stopped. So I, I have a spreadsheet here of uh, tournaments that have gone on in uh, domestic cricket for women's cricket right up from the 2006-7, which is when the BCCI took over. And that tournament ran, that inter-zone three-day tournament ran from 2014-15 season to the 2017-18 season and then just disappeared. Not just disappeared, the inter-zone format itself disappeared. So this is something again that I wrote about when the change happened completely arbitrarily, no communication or clarification given as to why the entire inter-zone format has just not been played. We basically take the best players and put them into zone teams and then have them play against each other, which is the second highest tournament in the country behind the Challenger Trophy. That's just been taken away. So that's 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 a whole new argument and that's happened across formats. So there's so much happening. I think though it is important to acknowledge at this point that we see countries, for example, England and Australia, playing test cricket without having first-class structures uh, in their domestic cricket. And doing well in test cricket. So there are a few players I've spoken to who are amongst the uh, top few players who are in contention for the Indian team who think, you know, it's not absolutely necessary to have that tournament, uh, to have a first-class tournament to prepare for tests, but a very concerted effort to making domestic cricket of a high standard, including uh, a women's IPL, is definitely something that is maybe a bigger priority i'd say because right now indian domestic cricket is in a mess as well yeah there must be that added frustration that you did have a red ball you know multi-day structure until a couple of years ago when in australia and england we've been arguing for this for a long time and sort of getting nowhere really at this stage and the interzonal system which was that bridge i suppose between the sprawling structure and the elite pinnacle bit, if you like. The Kia Super League served that role in England as a semi-professional competition, which grew and grew, and now there's the 100, and of course now there's the regional structures, which started last year, and they're you know, 41 professionally paid players in addition to the national contracts. So 58 women are paid to play cricket uh, in England uh, right now, which is a great thing. Uh, in Australia, they, they've been ahead of the curve yet further with the WNCL and the most recent memorandum of understanding from 2017, which has enabled the the, uh, the, the, the non-international players to have that next level up. But it seems like India have been moving the other way to an extent. Whilst there is these central contracts and that should be celebrated and facilities are improving as well as, as I understand it. But th- that middle bit, the interzonal bit, uh, and indeed the women's IPL, the elephant in the room, neither of which are now really part of the conversation. I mean, you can hear the way that those who are close to people at the BCCI suppress the idea of a women's IPL. They talk up the idea of, you know, having a, a three or four team competition, the exhibition tournament, but they don't sort of seem to have any real ambition for a true women's IPL in, in the same way that we have the Women's Big Bash League, for example, aligned to the existing franchises. I don't buy the argument that there isn't enough depth for a women's IPL. If you want to talk about an eight-team IPL, sure, it'll be stretched. But why start with an eight-team IPL? Start with the four-team IPL. Start with the six-team IPL. That's absolutely something that is very much doable in terms of uh, that depth already existing. Watching some of the domestic games, the one tournament that did happen this year, the 50-over interstate domestic tournament, and there was a crop of talented players who are nowhere near the international scene who haven't really been picked uh, in India squads, but these kids can play. There are, I mean, uh, there are videos on Hotstar of uh, 
tall fast bowlers bowling yorkers uh, indrani roy the left handed wicketkeeper batter who really had a good domestic season the kind of batting effort that she put in i'm really glad that that's been rewarded so i do not buy that depth argument and if you're serious about that depth argument why not build an interzonal layer above the domestic layer i mean it's something that was working it's something that the players liked i mean personally i enjoyed playing the interzonals because you're you know just the standard is so high you're playing against the best of each zone railways is kind of taken out of the equation a little bit because railways doesn't play as a separate team in the interzonal format most of the railways team fits into the central zone team because that's where they're assigned but then every other zone is bolstered by the collective strength of multiple states and so therefore you have teams that can challenge uh, the collective uh, might of a railway team in the guise of central zone so i thought it worked beautifully and bring it back if you think this depth is a problem bring it back let's build that depth and then uh, have the conversation where does uh, cricket sit for women in india financially at the moment because we've we've seen one of the big barriers to getting more women involved is is the cost um you know as well as social barriers i suppose disapproval that that women should be involved in sport at all but cost is a big barrier and then even when you're looking at the professional players the the, the amounts that they're being paid are a very small fraction compared to the amounts that, that the male players are getting paid. Uh, what's the sort of overview of the financial situation? So, from conversations that we had after publishing uh, the Equal Hue report, we've kind of been driving the Equal Hue project further by um, having private discussions around each theme of the report and. um through one of these round tables as we've called them which was focusing on uh, the financial realities that women face we saw that the biggest um fall the biggest drop off is when girls have to move from tennis ball cricket to leather ball cricket because then suddenly you have to invest in a better quality bat you have to invest in uh, pro- protective equipment and especially in the current climate sharing of equipment which was a fairly common practice before covid is not really an option that has and continues to prove to be a huge financial barrier uh, it will probably i mean investing in your own cricket kit will probably cost between 10 to 15000 rupees to give you perspective the four or five years ago a starting salary of a top level engineer was 60000 rupees so that's you know a chunk of your salary suddenly going into uh your girls protective equipment for a sport that she may or may not continue playing for uh even a few months or years and add to that the tendency to be more willing to invest in these kind of things for boys and less willing to invest in these kind of things for girls that's the biggest financial barrier solving that is a hard one because it really requires uh you to go down to uh the grassroots and find a solution there you can solve for players who want to play higher level cricket by making higher level cricket more incentivized and making you know playing for your state that's a that's a viable financial future and in that way you can solve for uh making sure that girls who are playing at that level who want to play at a higher level will stay in the game because they'll look at it as an investment you make today but which might give you financial returns later it's harder to solve for 
uh, young girls who maybe aren't sure whether they want to play for a state or aren't sure and maybe they just want to have fun playing cricket maybe they just want to uh, play cricket recreationally that's something we came across in our report and it's something which is a challenge which is probably like i said harder to solve but it's is easy to solve for the serious cricketers and there are a vast number of serious women cricketers at the grassroots who want to play for the state who want to play for the, for india just because a the game is so visible in india as compared to any other women's sport maybe bar women's badminton thanks to uh, sindhu and saina i don't have the numbers to back this up but i instinctively think that women's cricket is the number 2 sport in india after men's cricket so because of that visibility you have a large number of girls wanting to seriously play cricket and therefore it's easy to really just say okay we're going to raise the match fees to a sustainable level and you'll just incentivize that pipeline like nothing else can right now match fees for senior cricket stand at 12500 rupees which like i just mentioned probably covers the cost of your kit for uh, a season if you play junior cricket you get half of that and if you're not in the playing 11 you get um, a smaller percentage of that so that's how things stand right now it the fact is that cricket is an expensive game to play uh, anywhere in the world but just increasing domestic match fees for women will definitely go a long way to incentivizing grassroots participation for serious cricketers. One more question about remuneration. I suppose you look there's an idea of the glory days of railways having some competition from Air India in the domestic structure and and Jilan Goswami of course is aligned to Air India from where she works and it's not a model that we're familiar with in England or Australia but but the model in India and Pakistan where companies employ players to play for them it's been a very effective over a long period of time in both countries male and female so you know what maybe half a dozen maybe eight of the squad who are in, over here at the moment play for just one employer in railways but no other employer has that status in domestic indian women's cricket at the moment i mean is there any likelihood that other be it public or private companies or organizations might get involved as employers uh, to create a to lay a foundation underneath the, the income uh, of players who do want to take the next step and play international cricket or indeed just play domestic cricket? Like, is there a sense that that sort of tried and true model uh, might get some momentum in women's cricket now that there's more visibility? I wish I could say yes, uh, but the answer is right now no. The challenges is a little bit of a chicken and egg situation where you don't have a tournament for these companies who might you know employ cricketers and form a team they don't have a tournament to play in that's why they don't form a team because there's no teams there's no tournaments so to give you perspective indian railways plays as a team in the men's tournament as well uh, and the women's tournament that's just been the way the ranji trophy has been since its inception or since railways was included and air india doesn't which is why there was no incentive for air india to continue hiring women's cricketers after the bcci took over because they wouldn't find a place in the bcci domestic structure similarly today say um state bank of india or um, the income tax department these are bodies which hire men's cricketers and sports persons across men and uh, women um, sports persons in other sports for example when i was working with western railway in my department there were four sports persons 
hired one was a badminton player a, a male badminton player one was a male chess player and one was a female table tennis player and they told me that in their respective sports they have petroleum boards they have the uh, income tax boards they have a number of public sector banks which offer employment and therefore railways isn't the you know the pick of the lot railways isn't the uh, one destination where they should go it's hard for that to happen in women's cricket because there isn't a tournament i've been talking about the corporate trophy for women which would really kind of set the ball rolling again the economics of it bcci could incentivize a corporate trophy by just keeping a big prize pot for teams that come in and participate that might incentivize employment it's a tricky one though because a lot of these companies operate on policies which aren't really framed for cricket so will they kind of go out of the way to form a women's cricket team just because you know there is this small incentive does it fit within the uh, myriad of government policies which dominate and uh, just have a say in how these things work it's hard but it's it's good to see a change in the trend i think uh, in the 2017 world cup uh, finalist team there were 9 out of 11 players representing railways in or maybe 10 out of 15 uh representing or employed with railways at some level and just looking through a possible playing 11 for the test match i see well should we do it should we pick an 11 before we round up why, why don't we pick an 11 and work out then let's do this let's pick your let's pick your team for so say shafali verma who's never played a red ball game in her life of course having arrived after the uh the end of the the, the first class comp presumably she'll open with smithy mandana so i have a left field view of this i wanted shafali in the odi team but i didn't want to have her open i wanted jamima and smriti to continue opening and i wanted shafali to bat at 5 or 6 to really come and you know take advantage of the batting power play in the last 10 overs so i have a similarly left field view of this i mean <laughs> uh i'm happy that and it completely depends on whether mithali raj is ready to bat 3 so have poonam and smriti who are your career openers and you know skilled at occupying the crease seeing off the new ball those kind of specialist test match skills both of them have those skills have them opening have mithali at 3 especially on a pitch which i've heard isn't going to be green you guys can tell me more about the pitch especially considering we're not using a duke's ball we're using a kukabura ball and i'm i'm disappointed about that very disappointed but that that makes me you know want to have mithali bat at 3 harman at 4 shafali at 5 deepthi at 6 uh, shikha tania julan arundhati and then for the spinner it will be interesting to see it basically depends on whether punam yadav is so back who, in top so form who, how are you playing the third seamer you're playing shikha julan and arundhati reddy right okay and then in terms of as spinner well punam yadav's got one of the a contracts right so you think that she would have you know have that spot wrapped up but ekta bish might be more suited to uh, to bowling uh, in the test format as a holding bowler perhaps I think uh, the fact that uh, Poonam Yadav has an A contract will have nothing to do with her selection because unlike in women's unlike in men's cricket where um, your A contract players are your all format players we don't have all formats in uh, women's cricket so therefore A contract doesn't mean automatically all format player considering so Poonam Yadav's form is going to be the first consideration considering that she had a bad tour of south africa she was left out of the railways 11 that played the final of the domestic tournament and that won the final of the domestic tournament so completely depends on whether she's back in form 
I I'm also of the opinion that Pune Yadav is extremely successful in limited overs cricket because it's limited overs cricket and you have to go after her. Now in a in a situation where you don't have to go after her, I'm curious to see how she will go. She hasn't played a test match in that sense. She's played one against South Africa but um I mean uh, I think the England batting order of today is definitely a bigger challenge than the South Africa batting order of 2014 and that was at home. this one is away on a pitch that i don't know tell me about the pitch which is why i think uh, punam yadav may or may not play completely depends on her form oh, well, I, i'm not getting down there myself until tomorrow so i'm not much use on the pitch my friends the hell but uh, i'll i'll send you a message as soon as we know hey uh, it's been wonderful to chat to you on the final web we've been meaning to do so for a long time i i want to recommend the report that you wrote last year just again it's called an equal hue the way forward for the women in blue it was published in the sports law and policy center journal in bangalore uh, it was submitted last year on the first anniversary of sid's passing which i thought was a a lovely touch a friend of all of ours and um, we miss him uh, around the traps uh, in in press boxes and also advancing the cause of indian women's cricket which you also do so magnificently so thank you for being part of the final word today Thanks for having me guys. Hi, I'm Isha Gua and you're listening to the final word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Final word, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon. Time to say goodbye, but before we do that, thanks again to Stahalf for joining us uh today. Uh, her words will be on uh well, they'll be everywhere because she's prolific. She talks on the radio, she talks on television, she writes in the newspapers, she writes in the magazines. If it's about India women's cricket, mm-hmm. Uh, she is there, so I strongly suggest that you follow her on social media. Indeed, we we might drop her Twitter handle uh, in the show notes, so you can do precisely that. Why not? Why not? Everything's in the show notes. It's a world of dreams. Discounts on Woodstock cricket bats, all kinds of stuff. If you're one of the people on Patreon, can I just say thanks? Because holy shit, we're chasing Jimmy, and and I think we're going to catch him. And what this means is that like normally making two shows a week takes us between three and five days of work in the week, and and the only reason we can do that is is because Patreon exists. And then at the moment we're doing the daily shows as well, which means we're literally going to be working seven days a week on the show. And again, you know, there's no extra for that. That's just coming out of uh, the the funding that we're able to get together from those existing sources. And without Patreon, we wouldn't be able to afford to do it. So, thank you to everybody who's on there. If you've thought about jumping on and you want to do it, uh, feel free to do so. Send us a nerd pledge. And if you're not in a position to jump on, don't feel bad about it. Just listen to the show and enjoy it. We like having you here. Yeah, and because we're making the daily shows this week and because I'm going to be wrapped up with broadcast commitments quite heavily at Bristol, we're not going to do story time, but I don't expect you're going to miss out on too much final word. You're going to get eight days of the daily on the trot. Hopefully you've enjoyed this app and we'll, we'll come back to story time when there's a, a bit more space in, in the podcast mm. feed next Saturday. Yep, clear air in the calendar. Oh, this show, this show's on the Bad Producer Podcast Network. They've got some other shows. You could listen to them. It's edited by DC. Dave Collins, no relation to Adam Collins, unless we can find something we might. I don't know, trace it back far enough. And uh, aside from that, hey, thanks to Wisdom Cricket Monthly. They do a good magazine. Uh, thanks to Snehal for being on the show. Thanks to Adam for hosting the show. Thanks to me for doing this bit at the end. You found it well. You found it really well. Final word. Me and you, Adam and Jeff. Until next time. Bye. I had to go about it. 